Welcome to Let's Review RN. My name is Bryn O'Donnell, and I'm a certified adult and geriatric nurse practitioner. I work as a cardiology APN and function as a visiting professor and clinical instructor for a BSN program. This is an independent production by myself, and I am not representing any educational institution. My goal is to deliver a condensed but robust review on topics primarily discussed in Adult Health 1 and 2 and some pieces of pharmacology of a bachelor degree nursing program. Over the years, I've learned that students have an immense amount of confusion and questions when they leave didactic, which makes applying what they are learning nearly impossible to the clinical setting. I want to break down the basics so that you can continue to build upon your knowledge and put the pieces together. Welcome to today's episode of Let's Review RN. I am so excited. I teamed up with Colleen and Jesse, and they are um, podcasters as well. And it was super exciting for me to reach out to them because I happen to be doing type 1 diabetes, and they have been talking about type 1 diabetes and living with type 1 diabetes um, on their podcast for over a year. So welcome, and thank you both for being here. And can you both just give the listeners a little background as to who you both are and what the driving force to starting a podcast on type 1 diabetes is? I'm Colleen Mitchell. I've had type 1 diabetes for almost 25 years now. I work in I work full-time in the power industry. I'm a co-host for the This Is Type 1 podcast, and I also have a side hustle as a life coach, so I do a lot of stuff. Uh, I wanted to start This Is Type 1 because I wasn't seeing a lot of podcasts out there geared towards life with Type 1. And when I surveyed the volunteers at our annual diabetes camp, I saw a lot of interest in a podcast. I'm really passionate about Type 1 diabetes education, and so I thought it was the perfect way to kind of package it up. And then I roped Jesse into it, but she has been 100% a willing participant, and she's a really great co-host. And I think she brings a unique perspective as a 17-year-old with type 1 that I didn't have at that age. Well, thank you again for being here. And Jesse, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm Jesse. Um, I'm 17, as Colleen said. I uh, I'm just going into my senior year of high school, so I'm not as like experienced with all life stuff. But with the diabetes things, I'm just coming up on about 10 years, so I know I pretty I I know what I'm talking about most of the time. Um, but yeah, diabetes is a huge, huge part of my life. And, um, so when Colleen asked me to do this with her, I would, at first I'm going to be honest, I wasn't quite sure. I was like, what am I getting myself into here? I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I was 16 when we started this, so I was still like kind of self-conscious a little bit, but eventually I was just like, okay, we're going to do a podcast and this is going to be awesome. And we've reached out to a whole bunch of people and like, I am here for diabetes, like to support other diabetics. So that's like my main reason for doing this. Well, that's awesome. And it's great that whether it's new onset or people have been living with this for many years, that they have you guys as a resource. My first question is really, what would you say is the most challenging thing about living with type 1 diabetes? The most challenging thing for me would probably be like the diabetic jokes that I hear a lot at school and like the misrepresentation of what it's like to be a diabetic. So when you look at a type 1 diabetic, you um, you see just a normal person, like you might not even know they're diabetic. And then 
all of a sudden you're hearing like, oh, they're diabetic because they're overweight or they don't eat a proper diet. But, you know, so those jokes just get a little tedious after a while. But, you know, you stay strong. You just keep going with it. And for me, it's just always on the back of my mind. There's no off switch or pause button. And we don't really get a break from this. Well, we don't, we don't get a break from this. It's 24-7 all the time. So if my blood sugar goes low at a really inconvenient time, it doesn't matter. I have to treat the low before I do anything else. Like if I'm driving, it means pulling over and waiting until I'm at a higher number. And then another challenging thing is that it's unpredictable. So we can do the same thing two days in a row and have completely different blood glucose profiles. You know, the saying about insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. We actually have to do that for diabetes. That. That does seem challenging. Um, I can't imagine. There's not many things in life that I feel like you could, you know, that those results would happen. You know, you do the same thing over and over again. Like you say, you should get the same results, but you don't. Um, So I can see how that would be ups and downs for you guys on a day-to-day basis. Um, Can you guys describe to us um, about the honeymoon period and did you experience the honeymoon period? So the honeymoon period is when the pancreas is still producing a really small amount of insulin at and following diagnosis. You have to be diagnosed before you can officially start your honeymoon period. It just means that any insulin you take via syringe, pen, or pump is really small. The honeymoon period can be extended by starting insulin therapy early. So if you still take a small amount of supplemental insulin, you can extend it or by reducing the number of carbohydrates in your diet because carbs drive an insulin response. And the more carbs you have, the more insulin you use, the more your pancreas starts to give out. It's really important to remember that not every type 1 diabetic will have a honeymoon period and they vary in length. It just depends on how far gone your beta cells are. I was diagnosed uh, when I was two and my blood sugar was 544. And I'm pretty sure I did not have a honeymoon period. For me, I was eight, so I kind of, I still re- really vividly remember like getting diagnosed and what the honeymoon period was like. Um, for me, it lasted a good six or seven months, I would say. It, my parents were more in charge of like the diabetes lifestyle than I was at the time, so I couldn't really be like, "Oh yeah, I know the exact day when my honeymoon period stopped." But um, so your honeymoon period. For me, it was like insulin absorbed really quickly and really suddenly into my system. I remember one time I was with my mom and we were out at a movie and all of a sudden my blood sugar had gone from 150 down to 48 within a matter of 15 minutes. So I remember like running out, like sitting on the bench outside the movie theater, like shoving candy in my mouth. I was like so happy. I didn't know what was going on, you know, so that was that was like the biggest experience that I had with my honeymoon period. And then later they were like, Oh yeah, this is your honeymoon period. You're probably going to experience this for a while. Um, so yeah, that's what it was for me. So being diagnosed at such young ages, can you tell me what it looks like? What is your meal approach like now? Um, versus when you were first diagnosed, do you guys eat carbs? Do you follow a strict diet or you do classify or label yourself as, you know, keto or modified keto, or how would you describe how you guys eat on a day-to-day basis? So I eat low carb now. Uh, For me, this means less than 50 net grams of carb per day. And I know that some people can be like, low carb is 
less than 100 grams, but for me, it's less than 50. And I've eaten this way since early 2016. I've never had better A1Cs than I do now. My last one was 5.4 and I've been as low as 5.1. My my diet before I started low carb was absolutely atrocious. I joke a lot with Jesse and my husband about just how bad I ate in college, but I was all over the carbs in college and it did not do me any favors. But um, so now I use way less insulin. I think I uh, over halved my insulin and lost about actually more than 50 pounds by changing diets like that. I mean, if you read, if you've read any of the books like uh, Dr. Jason Fung's Obesity Code, Dr. Bernstein's The Diabetes Solution, or Gary Taub's Why We Get Fat, the really clear message in those books is that carbohydrates stimulate an insulin response, which in type 1 diabetics is a blood sugar response because our pancreas doesn't produce insulin. And then that insulin will drive fat storage and a whole host of other health problems. So for me, when I learned this, it was just a really logical decision to cut out the carbs and I've had really good success with it. And then for me, I did really low carb, like less than 20, less than 40 for a really long time. And I'm still trying to stick to that. But as of right now, I'm kind of experiencing or experimenting with being vegetarian a little bit. And that's been going pretty well too. I'm really enjoying that. I feel my body just kind of feels cleaner being both like low carb and vegetarian. I mean, sometimes the options are like a little bit hard when you're eating out and you know, you don't get that like, Oh yeah, we're this restaurant is like totally like vegan, low carb, you know, you don't usually get that. So I do a lot of cooking at home and stuff. Um, but when I first was diagnosed with diabetes, I was eight. So I was a very active, like, Oh, let's go play. Let's go eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I remember one time I was like in the third grade and I had 115 carbs at lunch and my school nurse did not know how to handle that very well. So, um, we called my dad up, you know, and just is like, Hey, this is how many carbs Jessica's eating. Are you okay with this? And I, I, I didn't know what was going on. So, you know, I was just like, Oh yeah, I'll just eat food and like hang out and then go run it off later. And, you know, being a happy kid, but yeah, now I'm low carb and vegetarian. You made mention of, you know, sticking to that, whatever your choices are for, for diet, whether it's vegan, vegetarian, keto, modified keto, you made mention Jesse specifically about eating out. So do you guys find that it is hard to eat out or, um, I mean, do you, you said, Jesse, you prefer to actually cook and do your own cooking and eat in, but what is your approach when eating out at restaurants? So it's always a hit and miss because when you like plan to go out with friends and stuff and like, you know, a week in advance, you can do a little bit of research on what your options are at a specific restaurant. So like Olive Garden, you can like pull up the nutritional information is to be like, okay, so this is what I'm going to order. I know exactly what I want. And um, so that gets pretty nice. That That's pretty nice when they have like a website that tells you what there is. Um, when it's like impromptu, like, oh, my coworkers are going to go to lunch um, and I want to go with them. That gets a little difficult um, just because like you don't know that you're going to have like, like the right amount of... Um, you know, nutritional value on like the carbohydrates and like how much insulin you're going to take. So it, it, for that it's hit and miss, but you just kind of avoid those like high carby um, foods like pastas and like really starchy foods, like potato kind of things like that. Just kind of do the best you can. 
Basically, yeah. I mean, once you've had diabetes, you kind of know like, oh, this is going to be this many carbs, like a glass of milk. I still know it's like 13 carbs for one cup. And then from there, you just kind of like, okay, here's my inference on what I, how many carbs I'm going to put in my pump. And Jesse talked about uh, being invited out to lunch with friends or coworkers in the middle of the day. Uh, one time I had already finished eating all of my food for the day. And then my boss sent me a, a meeting, meeting invite for lunch, which was half an hour later. And I'm like, oh, now I have to eat lunch again. <laughs> so I ended up just taking part of it home. But for me, uh, I usually order burgers without the buns, omelets, or steak and vegetables. Uh, I'll occasionally get a salad if it's a, a Cobb salad, but uh, because those include a lot of protein and fat. I always say that it's not really that hard for me to find something to eat, uh, except at a sushi restaurant, which I won't go into anyway. This is a question for Colleen because Jesse, you're a little too young, um, but how do you manage alcohol consumption with type one diabetes? So I don't drink alcohol very often. I usually only drink it at holidays or if I'm going out to a team dinner with my work team, because then it's kind of a social situation and I'll have food to absorb it anyway. Uh, if I do drink, I prefer to drink with food so that um, the food absorbs all the alcohol in my system. And then I only have one serving at a time, so I won't get a second glass. I prefer scotch whiskey, which is zero carb. It's really important for diabetics to pay attention to the carb count in their alcohol. Any of the hard alcohols, like the spirits, those are all very low carb. But once you get into the wines and the mixers, then you're in a whole other ballgame. If I drink on an empty stomach, my blood sugar will go low. So I have to uh, either have my husband watch my blood sugar overnight or I'll set an alarm in the middle of the night to wake up, which is a piece of advice I got from somebody on Facebook. Um, if I, so when I usually drink, it's with food and that will actually make my blood sugar go up over the middle of the night. So I have a separate insulin profile on my pump to take care of the, the rise in the middle of the night. Um, other than that, I just drink a lot of water. Uh, I've never had a, a hangover and I've never been drunk and plan to keep it that way. It almost seems like it's more work to drink alcohol. And so do you find that it deters you from, from drinking it? Kind of. Since I do intermittent fasting and my eating window is really early in the morning, if I'm going to drink with friends I, and I want to eat something in the afternoon, I'm breaking my fast. So it has to be planned in advance and I have to know exactly what I'm going to be drinking and what food I'll have with it. So I can, uh, prepare for that overnight spike. How does stress affect your uh, type 1 diabetes management? So stress for me, it can do one of two things. It can either lower my blood sugar or make it go up. I was at the store today and I that was very stressful wearing the face masks and getting groceries. And so I was very stressed out at the moment. And I went back to my car and my blood sugar was just tanking. So that's one instance where it's like, oh, my blood sugar is definitely going to go down. Um, so I'm going to eat something. But when I'm doing like testing for like the AP tests at the end of the year, I usually have to take more insulin because um, I'm not really moving around and like the, like the um, nervous jitters just kind of like sit there in you. So that's an instance where it makes my blood sugars go up. Something that Jesse and I have learned over the course of doing our podcast is that oftentimes we will have completely opposite experiences for different things. So when I'm stressed out, usually like most of the time I'll, I'll go high and she'll either go high or low. Um, if 
I get, uh, if I go low, I get really warm. She gets really cold. So it's, it affects everybody differently, but for stress in particular, um, stress raises cortisol, which directly impacts the body's ability to use insulin. And I learn all of this from my endocrinologist whenever I go see her, she likes going on a spiel, but high stress environments can really contribute to the long-term insulin resistance. When I was in college, my blood sugars were high almost all the time. And I had really, really high highs, really low lows. And my doctor told me it's because you're in college, you're just stressed out. And I had hoped that would change with work, but it kind of doesn't. So it's a lot harder to control blood sugars when we are stressed out. Adrenaline will raise my blood sugar. And whenever I go through TSA, my blood sugar goes up every single time. It's pretty predictable in that I have uh, an airline profile on my insulin pump so that when I wake up, I'll put it on airline so that it'll raise my blood sugar or excuse me, raise my insulin right when I get to TSA. Long-term stress can contribute to burnout, which means different things to different people, but it generally can be summarized in that people get fed up with their diabetes. They might wish it would go away. And in extreme cases, they stop taking care of themselves. For me, the most I really get is just frustrated with my blood sugars or with my pump, but I've never been full, never want to take care of myself again. Jess, do you want to comment on your experience with burnout? So I had like diabetic burnout um, a couple of months ago, like at the beginning of the school year, so September of 2019. I was like, I really don't want to be doing this anymore. I was exhausted. I'm in my junior year. I should be focusing on school and that really attributed to, because I was taking like, you know, X, Y, Z classes. I was worried about college. I didn't know like what the SATs were going to look like. So a lot of like stress piling it on and keep going. And I just got a new job. So everything was amplified for me. So, and I decided that I was going to take this out on diabetes, which wasn't the best situation. Um, so it was very, I would say that COVID, like when we, everything just shut down was kind of like a blessing in disguise for me a little bit. Cause it, it took me a second, but I was like, okay, I'm going to take a breather. And this, this is just like, I'm, I'm going to figure this out for myself and I'm going to figure out how I can make this better for myself. Um, so in that way, I think COVID was good for me because I got the chance to sit and think about my life choices and kind of um, look at, you know, diabetes isn't the bad thing. It's not bad. I'm just tired. So um, I decided, you know, up my sleep, um, cut out, you know, like coffee, like a couple of times a week. Um, and that really helped a lot. It was like, wow. I'm actually okay. My diabetes is going to be fine. Like everything's fine in the world, even though it's kind of not right now, but, um, it just, I just needed a second to like rethink things. So that, that was good. Um, but burnout is not fun. It's not good. It's, it's not a place where you want to be at in life. It's crazy. Cause from an outsider looking in, you think, I would have never really realized that burnout was such a large part of almost not everybody, every type one diabetic, but a lot of type one diabetics, if not all of them. And, um, you don't, you don't know and don't realize how much of your thought process on a daily basis goes into your diabetes. 
and hearing you guys talk about it, it it's it's crazy. It's eye opening. So, I guess my last question is, what are three characteristics of a good endocrinologist that you guys look for in your own endocrinologist or that you would recommend to anybody with new onset type one diabetes or someone who just wants to, to get a new endocrinologist? So for me, my top three are that they listen to you as a patient and they treat you like a person. That's really important. They support your preferred diet and bonus points. If they also work with your preferred technology you don't want to have an endocrinologist who basically is a salesperson for one specific pump, but you want a different one. And then probably the most important is that they put the responsibility of care in your hands. So I don't go in every three months and ask my doctor, what do I, what do I do? I go in and I tell her what I have been doing. She looks at my blood sugars. If she wants to change something, we talk about it. But ultimately, it's my diabetes. She's not with me every day. And I'm the one who's responsible for keeping my blood sugars in range. So... Doctors that put the responsibility in your hands are the best ones. And my three are so that they work with you and not against you. Like you are a, t- you should be a team unit. Like this is, this is for your care, but you should also understand like the, the like the thought process of your doctor as well. Um, because you need to know what decisions she wants to make with you, not for you and not for against you. My second one would be that um, she she or he listens to what I'm saying. I've only had a female endocrinologist before, so I'm, I'm not used to saying like, oh, the guy doctor. I'm not used to that. Um, but they listen to what I'm saying and what my needs and wants are rather than like ignoring that kind of thing. So when I decided to go vegetarian, they sent in the dietitian, you know, I was like, Hey, what was your decision behind this? What was your thought process? And they want, they actually wanted to know, like, why do you want to be vegetarian? And I explained it to him. I was like, well, I don't feel good when I eat meat. It's just something that I noticed over time. Um, and they're like, okay, that's awesome. But you know, things are going to change. And they explained to me what was going to change and how it was going to change. So they, they explained things to me. And then lastly, I would probably say that they're there for me and not my parents. So I'm a younger diabetic and, you know, my parents should come with me. They, they should always be at your endocrinology appointments until a certain point, you know, but um, they should always be listening to their patient and not mom or dad. And I say that of like the most respect for my parents because they have done such a good job of letting me speak for my diabetes and like handing the baton over um, to me when I was like, Oh, this is, this is my diabetes. This isn't the, like, this isn't your guys's diabetes. This is mine. Um, And my doctors even noticed that they were like, okay, so we're going to switch to your, we're going to ask you the direct questions and not mom or dad. Well, this has been awesome and very enlightening. And I think You've answered so many questions that we've all had and so many people listening will relate who have type 1 diabetes or know someone who has type type 1 diabetes or they've just, they'll definitely enjoy learning all that you guys have given us. So I thank you guys so much for being here and um, wish you guys the best on your podcast. And can you guys just let everyone know where they can listen more? Yeah, you can go to thisistype1.com and that's with the digit one 
or you can search this is type one on any of the podcast networks and we're there. Yeah, Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, we're on all of them. Um, if you want to reach out to me or Colleen, my Instagram is JJ underscore Crystal K-A-T if you ever have questions about anything. And on uh, social media, all of my handles are at Inspired Forward because that's my main website. This podcast is for general information review purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or nursing. The use of this information or any materials provided by Let's Review RN are at the user's own risk. This content is not intended to be a substitute for educational teachings through students' educational institutes or organizations.